0: This episode of Above and Beyond is sponsored by Compassion International. To sponsor a child today, simply visit compassion.com/slash above. Cairo Seattle. Well, here it is, the first episode of Above and Beyond. My foray into the world of podcasts. Something I've been really excited about for some time. I've talked sports for a number of years, been over a decade at ESPN on the television over eight years on the radio, and while, like athletes, I can intersperse my faith and some of my testimony and some of my church stories and the folks up in Seattle know about my men's group that I meet with on Wednesday mornings, I guess this platform gives me a really long-form opportunity to not just share my story, but to share those who have shaped my story. That as I look back now, and as we start this, it's interesting when you do a podcast you do look back at what has shaped you, what has molded you, and it is relationship the more and more I think about it. And that's so much of my testimony, the people that brought me to the Lord and have impacted my life. And then with the platform of sports, something I talk about every day, I've lived out for decades, but to really dig into those two, faith and sports, that's what this podcast is about. And when I thought about the first, who could be one of the originals in this process it was Matt Hasselbeck. Matt was a former Seahawk was a pro bowler in fact took the Seahawks to the Super Bowl played nearly two decades in the NFL but our stories well they intersect because he was traded from Green Bay to Seattle when I was on the roster when I thought I would be the quarterback of the Seahawks and he was traded a first rounder to be the guy to lead this organization which he did to new heights sitting down with Matt Hasselback is quite a treat. Matt, after all, was the first guest on our radio show out in Seattle on 710 ESPN Seattle, our very first guest, and he's our very first podcast as well. And speaking of first, Matt, I guess I would ask you, where did it all begin for you in your faith journey?
1: I don't know if I know it either, uh, (laughs) to be honest. So, you know, I grew up thinking that my parents were like, you know, church people, like super spiritual. I always see my dad reading his Bible in the morning. see my mom reading her Bible in the morning. My mom was very strict. My dad was pretty strict too. And, uh, You know, I just thought they were always like that. I really had no idea, but I I found out later that I think it was maybe when I was in third grade, my mom and dad kind of became Christians the same year, became very serious about their faith. They were kind of brought up in a church, but I don't think they really um, had a relationship um, with the creator of the world. You know, I think they just were sort of, um, you know, rules and regulations kind of Christians. And um, that all changed in, I would say, like 1982, maybe. Uh, 81, 82, somewhere in there, 83. And so as far as I knew growing up, they just were, you know, always like that.
0: And you knew sports in your home.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, so, you know, I was born, my parents were uh, married in college. My dad went to Colorado. So I was born in Boulder, Colorado. And uh, we got drafted to the New England Patriots. And uh, they had to, as I hear it, as I hear the stories, they had to look up New England on a map. And you know you didn't have Google back then, so they had. Uh, I think they had to go buy an atlas somewhere in Colorado and look up New England, and they realized. Uh where it was, what it was, what city, or sorry, what states made up New England and where they would be moving. And uh, so I grew up basically in this area. My dad was drafted in the second round. We bought a house here. My parents still live in that same house. And uh, he played for the New England Patriots, Los Angeles Raiders, Minnesota Vikings, New York Giants over the course of his nine year career. Uh, so I just thought that was sort of normal. That's all I really knew. Uh, people would ask me, what do you want to do when you grow up? I'd say, oh, I don't know. I guess I'll just play football in the NFL like my dad. Like I just thought that sort What you did, you know, like I, all my friends, that's what their parents did. So, um, I was pretty clueless for sure. Growing up.
0: You're kind of like the mayonnaise. You're, you're the oldest of
1: three <laughs> the, boys, right? The, the J.V. Mannings, yeah. yes.
0: <laughs> That's actually my line. I think I tried to say oh, that. Oh, sorry, yeah. sorry. Well, no, you say... know, it's funny
1: about that. In, in, in 1984, <laughs> my dad was on the Minnesota Vikings, and uh, he was backing up this tight end, Steve Jordan, and the one of the third string quarterback at that time was Archie Manning. So every Saturday oh. was myself, my brother Tim, um, not so much my youngest brother, Nathaniel. He was like a little young, uh, but then Cooper and Peyton Manning, and not so much Eli. Uh, he was a little young. It, but, like, we would play touch football against all the equipment guys and the trainers in the Minnesota Vikings uh, indoor facility, like, every Saturday. It was so much fun. Cooper would just work us over. He was so fast. He a little bit older. And... Um, you know, I remember saying to myself, dude, this Cooper Manning is going to be a star someday. Star. It's <laughs> <laughs> close.
0: Yeah, close. yeah, very close. And in those times of, of competing for, at a very early age in, a, in what turned out to be a, a very competitive home with, with three brothers, you being the oldest, as you competed growing up how did that faith component that was in your home, how did it represent itself in your sports growing up? Or did it?
1: You know what? It, 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 it was everywhere for me. I mean, it was everything I did. I I, I prayed, I, uh, I tithed, I thought about others. I mean, it was all those things. But what really was hard for me is when I got to like football and not so much like in my town. You know, I grew up in a small town outside of Foxborough Stadium. My town was like so small that uh, it took like three other towns to make a team. It was, like we had this little tiny team with these little you know nothing towns going up against like the bigger city you know the city teams in boston and uh and my dad ended up coaching we weren't allowed to play football growing up so my dad retired the deal was when my dad retired we would get to play football so we we played football we'd play these little like you know nothing towns going up against like the city kids who took the train to school every day um you know, like we did really well, but it's, I didn't really struggle with that. But it was when I got to high school and all those city kids now is going to school with them, uh, I went to like a bigger private school that was more of a football school. Uh, that was the real struggle for me. Like, how do I try to be this like solid Christian kid that I was trying to be in Sunday school, um, who I was in my small hometown, to now this kid that's trying to be, I don't know, this tough football player in Boston with all these. Tough city kids and you know all upperclassmen and you know that was a real struggle for me and I, I didn't know how to do that well. And that's
0: a Zavarian brothers. So.
1: Yeah, well we like to say Zavarian. Zavarian brothers sounds a little soft, so <laughs> we we'll just say the X Zavarian.
0: Of which you went into the Hall of Fame here recently when you were with the Indianapolis Colts and was looking at some of that and listening to that video, getting ready for today. So talk to me through that. You you said it was a struggle. How did that manifest itself? What did what did Matt Hasselbeck, the young Matt Hasselbeck, that point, trying to fit in with new teammates, fit into a new culture, fit into a new community and have his faith and his convictions. How'd that sort itself out?
1: Well, it was tough. I mean, I didn't want to go to Zavarian in the first place. It was an all boys school. My mom, you know, I had sweet hair back then, Brock. I don't know if you can believe that, but you can look that up too. I had really nice hair. And my mom was like, yeah, we're getting this kid out of a co-ed situation as quick as possible. So eighth grade. you are too cute, you're saying. You are too cute. I'm I'm actually going to say yes. And the Lord's thorn in your side is early balding. Otherwise, you'd have been too cute. It was more of a, it was like, oh yeah, you think you're so hot? Here you go. (laughs) (laughs) Not literally hot, but you know what I'm saying. But my mom basically was like, listen, we're, I'm not, you're not focused. You're in la-la land over here in eighth grade. You think you know everything. So, you know, I went to this all boys school and it was very competitive for football and I, I actually try it out for tight end I'd never played quarterback I tried out for tight end I went out for a pass the guy overthrew me uh, I picked with the ball threw it back and the coach comes over to me and he's like hey why don't you try out for quarterback I'd like you to get in the quarterback line and I was like oh wow that's pretty cool like, he thinks I have a good arm I'm like okay that's a good sign and then I hear him say real loud to the other coach he's like that kid's too skinny he'll never be able to play for us like he'll never be able to block anybody <laughs> so I was like okay so I was always trying to be a little bit tougher than I really was and try make maybe just trying to be a little more macho than I was. And and, um, I don't know, it was just hard to balance that and who I wanted to be as a a Christian, who I was in Sunday school and like that kind of thing. And um, it was an early struggle that didn't go away right away. What did you learn from it? Well, I didn't learn anything through high school. I didn't really learn how to handle that right, handle that well. I didn't learn through college. And it wasn't probably until I got to the NFL, I was drafted to the Green Bay Packers, when I really saw what I was hoping to be like lived out. And I think, and like, I should have seen it in my dad because he's a perfect example, but I, I didn't see it. I just, I didn't. And, uh, maybe because he was my dad, but I think maybe my view of who, um, who Jesus of Nazareth was, was all messed up. And that was probably the problem. You know, my view of Jesus was like this, like, Hallmark Easter dude like like that has like long flowy hair and like wears white dresses and loves like pastel colors like Easter egg colors like that was my image of him because that's everything I'd seen growing up and um, I think it wasn't until I was in the NFL with the Green Bay Packers um, just being around guys like Reggie White and Danny Werfel and just hearing them teach about who jesus of nazareth was like who was this guy like here's who he claimed to be but who he who was he really he was like a man's man he was a dude's dude he was a carpenter this dude was a carpenter like that was what his job was he was a carpenter and he hung out with fishermen so like there wasn't at all the you know what i had in my head thinking about like this guy who like sits there and combs his hair and he would blow dry it if he could and you know he, he wears like a, a white gown that you know i i saw babies get dedicated in you know that was the image I had in my head and so I think when I figured out who he was it helped me figure out how to better follow him
0: so as you look back at Matt Hasselbeck the quarterback to Boston College those years
1: in those college years how would you define that guy then yeah, I mean, different every year. I was growing up, maturing both physically, emotionally, spiritually, you know, mentally, all of it. But I, I, I use that line because the head coach one time, he, I think it was going into my fourth year, he was deciding on who was going to be the starting quarterback, and it was sort of my chance to finally start, and he picked the kid younger than me. And I remember he what he said to me. He said, listen, if I was picking a president, I would pick you, but I'm looking for a general, and I'm picking him. And it was like all my fears were like realized at that moment, like, oh, my gosh, you're right. You're totally right. And I'm, now I'm angry. Like now I'm really angry about this. Um, and so I was good at being angry, but I just wasn't good at being angry and being who I wanted to be. And so, um, you know, I think that that was there for sure.
0: What is that? What, what is the difference in your in your mind? What is the difference between the president in general?
1: I remember when I was a freshman quarterback at Boston College, Peyton Manning was the year, like he was a year behind me. I remember looking at like the list of top recruits in the country and Peyton Manning was a top quarterback coming out that year. And I remember running up to the football office like, Hey guys, guys, I know Peyton Manning. We were friends when we were little, like in fourth grade, we're good friends. Um, if you guys are recruiting him, like I'll help. I can definitely get him to come here. (laughs) They're looking at me like crazy. Like why on earth would you want Peyton Manning to come here? But I just, I was a nice, nice guy. You know, I just was like, no, that'd be great for the program. That'd be awesome. He would make us all better. You know, he'd make me better. I thought that's what I was supposed to try to be. Mm. I think that'd be a better way to say it Mm. because college was also the time that, you know, I was away from home for the first time and I, you know, I started doing things I would never done before. I never drank. Like a lot of my friends in high school, they drank, they smoked, they did all this stuff and I never did any of that. It was just like, no, I'm so committed to my sport. I'm going to do what the upperclassmen do. And the upperclassmen at my position didn't do that. I got to college and it was a whole different deal you know, the upperclassmen at my position, that's what they were doing. You know, so I started drinking for the first time, which, you know, was uh, definitely not the right thing for me to be doing at that time. And it was a tough time. I didn't know who I was trying to be. So does the
0: president, does the president fit in? Am I feeling like you just tried to, fit, either Zaverian with older kids and all boys school and at Boston College, and you're trying to kind of trying to fit into that culture, whereas maybe a general is one who just leads and commands by his own
1: conviction. You know, I, I don't know exactly what that coach meant by that statement, but I, I knew for me what it meant and I needed to get tougher. I need to be more authentic. Like, you know, politicians can kind of fake it, you know, with people and put on a good show and have an awesome resume and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But, uh, I think in the context of like a locker room, it's hard to fake it with your teammates. It's hard to fake it with your coaches even, but uh, mostly your teammates, and they just know who you really are. And I, I've never been in battle. I've only read about generals, but I, I feel like that lead from the front uh, mentality and like, hey, you know who I am. You know, you, you're with me 24-7, basically. Uh, you know the real me. And that senior year, did ultimately you get your opportunity? It's so crazy. So, no. <laughs> I actually had gotten sick in Jamaica. Uh, I got contracted hepatitis A. I missed my chance to kind of compete. So they named the other guy the starter. I flip out. I It was like, I think my exact quotes on the cover of the Boston Globe the next day. Like, this is not even a joke. This is true. Uh, they asked me what I thought about the head coach's decision. I said, he should be wearing a big red nose and big red shoes because he's a clown. <laughs> those like. my <those>, like, <laughs> Which is which is really sort of funny, eventually, because... Well, um, I hope
0: you've all enjoyed the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thank
1: you for joining in 2006, uh, he was my offensive coordinator in the Pro Bowl, right after we had played in the Super Bowl, because he was uh, the coordinator for Carolina, who had played in the NFC Championship game. But here's the funny thing. When I said it, he smiled so big, like yes like you're getting there like i want more of that he was a very very good coach his name was dan henning Mm -hmm. and he was a very good wise so wise like i didn't know how wise he was and uh great with quarterbacks and you know the whole time i think i thought he didn't like me and in turn what i now realize is that he saw so much more than me in me than i saw myself and um So yeah, so anyway, he starts the other quarterback and we're losing our first game of the year in Hawaii and we basically kind of give up, you know, we're like, all right, we lost in here, you go in. You know, because I know that'll be a thing. You go in. And I'm not even going to call the plays for you. You call the plays. So I was in such a bad spot. I just started calling whatever I could remember. We go down and score. We go down and score. We get a two-pointer, uh, two-point conversion or something like that. And then a true freshman kicks a game winner. We end up winning the game. I don't even know how. Um, and I, he's like, hey, listen, you earned the right to start. So I ended up starting the rest of my career, mm. uh, fourth year. And then uh, they actually invited me back for a fifth year, which they weren't going to do. So... Uh, pretty amazing. Definitely amazing. And
0: then you ultimately go on to be the first pick in the draft.
1: <laughs> uh, close. Pick 187. The the, the draft of uh, Peyton, yeah. Peyton Manning, Ryan Leaf, and and me. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm kidding, am that, kidding. I didn't even expect you to get drafted. I mean, I really had no intentions of getting drafted Uh I always thought, like, well, maybe someone will sign me as a free agent afterwards. Um, I had a pro day. Only, uh, the, only the quarterbacks coach for the Green Bay Packers showed up, Andy Reid. And it snowed so hard in Boston, and we didn't have an indoor facility that we didn't even work out. So I thought, well, that's not good.
0: And yet you send, and you still do this, Matt. I've noticed it almost every year around the draft that you will still tweet out your college numbers to those draft picks in the fifth, sixth, seventh round that kind of find themselves in that area?
1: I I might stop doing that because the stats now are so good and mine were so bad that (laughs) it it might lose credibility for my new job. So uh, it took me – I didn't realize how bad they were, though. I mean, the only reason I know it is I was like – you know, signing football cards one day and I looked on the back and it had my college stats on this one card. I was like, no way, that can't be true. So I looked it up, I'm like, oh, I guess it's true. I think I have negative 281 yards rushing in my college career, something like that. I know like my rookie card says, "Uh, Matt, who threw more interceptions than touchdowns in college. I'm like, that's that's the one good piece you could write about me on a football card, your rookie card at that.
0: But ultimately Andy Reid and Mike Holmgren say, come on up to Green Bay
1: shockingly i remember they called me during the draft it was the second day of the draft and uh i was at home we were like making photo albums or something like that in between pickup basketball they called and i was like well shoot maybe i'll get a free pair of shorts out of this uh you know mini camp that i get invited to before they cut me and and i'll get to bring home the shorts and i'll get to show them to my kids and my grandkids oh yeah i played for the packers one time or you know for three days i got there and i realized like you know what i I can I can play with I can play here.
0: You know, you said a word earlier, and and you referenced the Danny Werfels and those guys you were introduced to. That word, authentic. Would you say that that was some of the most authentic faith, authentic Christians that? They really knew the Christ that you wanted to follow? Was that your first real introduction there?
1: I'll tell you, Reggie White, it's so weird. I mean, I was a rookie quarterback, and everyone says, oh, what'd you learn from Brett Favre? Like, well, I learned a lot from Brett Favre. He was great. But but the Green Bay Packers, it's not like most teams where you kind of have your lockers by position. The way the Packers do it, it's like you're scattered all throughout the locker room. So I was sort of directly across from Reggie White so he would walk by me every time he had to go to like the training room or the you know shower area so I, he'd walk past me a lot he'd always say hello and I just remember like this guy was so legit I mean he would you know, obviously he was like the best player in the game maybe ever at his position. Yet at the same time he was, he was like lead Bible studies. He would say a few words at chapel. He was so authentic. I mean, he would hold court with the D line and you know, there's always arguments in the, in the uh, locker room. And he, it was almost like when he talked, everyone would shut up and be like, all right, what's he have to say about this issue or you know there'd be like a a 10-year vet like in the shower like you know the second one over with the best water pressure and reggie would like walk into the shower and the 10-year vet he'd be like he'd be like yeah i'm just gonna go to the other side like this is the best shower i'm gonna give it up for reggie like this guy commanded so much respect didn't demand any of it yet was so like devout and legitimate yet on the football field He would crush you, like he would knock you and he would embarrass you, knock you on the ground, help you up, like that kind of a guy. It it took everything in me not to ask for his autograph. I mean, it was very cool to be around him.
0: And the impact and the influence in your own walk?
1: Yeah. And the funny thing about it is I ended up making the practice squad that year with the Packers. So I was the fourth string quarterback. There's really nothing for a third string quarterback to do. So I was the fourth string quarterback. And uh, so I played scout team tight end every day in practice and would block Reggie White. You know, so it was like, you know, I got him in a three point stance for the first time since eighth grade. And, you know, he was like, Hey, brother, just uh, hold on for like two 1,000 and I'll throw you to the side. I'm like, Okay, yes, sir. Thank you, Mr. White. You know, and so we just spent a lot of time together and I just saw this guy. I mean, he was, he was, uh, he was the real deal.
0: It's interesting, Matt. You talk about president to general. And I think if people tune into this podcast and they think the great generals that have ever played the quarterback position in the history of the NFL, I think a Brett Favre is going to be on that list. Play with a broken finger. Play with a broken foot. Here you got into a position in Green Bay where you're practice squad and eventually you grow to be his backup. And you watch one of the generals of the game play. And then you've got one of the real pillars to ever, ever don an NFL uniform from a Christian community standpoint in Reggie White. You have both of those characters at play in your life. Is that a fair way to characterize that period of time for you?
1: Yeah, no doubt. And and it would be impossible not to add Mike Holmgren into that as the head coach, kind of crafting. He used to say all the time, being a quarterback, it's being an artist, not a blacksmith. And I didn't really get what that meant. And then I'd watch Brett play. And I was really good at like doing what you were supposed to do. Like, okay, hey, if they're in an under front, they're going to bring the strong dog to the right side, play three fire zone. Here's your hot. That's where the ball has to go. And I would see Brett and he just would play ball. Like he was just go out and play. He would just have fun. And then on the side, Mike Holmgren's like, hey, you're an artist. Paint your canvas. You know, this is what typically you should do, but play within these parameters and, and cut it loose. And like so I was kind of just like observing all of this, taking notes, studying this, trying to, you know, put this into my game. And what I've realized is is uh, you know the passion and the the fun that Brett was having with, the uh, the skill level and the toughness of both Brett and Reggie with the sort of the mindset of Mike Holmgren was, a, uh, you know, it was, it was changing me. It was really changing who I was. And I was, I just, I think I had, I kind of, again, I had the quarterback thing all wrong. You know, I thought I was like an accountant or a mathematician. Um, and it was it was different it was different than that and there was there's there's a lot of passion and uh, uh, courage that comes in it and and a lot of uh creativity and, and just kind of making it your own as a quarterback
0: who was it in the authenticity standpoint that really challenged your faith we had this guy
1: named Gilbert he was the player programs guy and he was the guy you know i was still single i was engaged but i you know everyone knew i didn't like have any plans every on the weekends or really ever. And, uh, this guy, Gilbert, he would, he would hound me. He would hound me. He's like, here's a book. I want you to read it. Let's read it together. I was like, Oh oh man, you know, it, but like he was always on me and, um, and he was great. He was great. He taught me a lot. He made me, um, Memorized some things. He'd ask me tough questions. Uh, he was a friend to me. I mean, anything I needed, anything. I and mean, this guy, he was married with a bunch of kids. It's funny, his kid, I've probably thrown in an interception to his kid. His kid, Jaris Bird, plays in the NFL now. So, um, you know, a great guy, definitely an influencer to me, and he was there that second year that and you know, just I think I grew as a football player that first year, that second year I really started to grow as a person.
0: And obviously getting traded to Seattle and Mike Holmgren, who believed in you early on, believed in you further, and trades for you to be his guy in Seattle, and the Matt Hasselback that comes to Seattle as a artist, as a general, as an authentic guy, was where in his journey?
1: Not, not far enough along, not far, I mean, on the journey for sure, but not far enough along, you know, as a quarterback, wasn't, wasn't ready, had no idea the difference was from, from being a backup to a starter, you know, being the guy that just comes in and replaces the starter for a little while to, you know, essentially, Hey, you're the guy. Can you start 20 games for us? That's what, that's what we're looking for. I uh, had no idea that spiritually, um, starting to figure out why I believed what I believed, uh, I remember I went to this conference, this uh, pro athletes outreach outreach conference right before I got traded to Seattle, and um, all these people there like super excited about their faith and like listening to music I'd never heard, and I was just was like, okay, these people are whacked out. Like I'm not what? Like who are, what are you so excited about? And this full disclosure, like... I was one of those. <laughs> yeah, that would be me. Yes. We were there. But I, I just I didn't I wasn't that passionate about uh, church, you know, like I'd never, I don't know. I, I wasn't, I just hadn't been exposed to that. I don't know, that style, I guess, I guess I'd, you know, growing up in the Northeast, mostly I was just, I was kind of involved in chapel programs, which were, you know, a lot of studying the Bible. Like I'd never heard Christian music, like Christian music was like, to me, like, you know, maybe what my mom listened to, like Amy Grant and, uh, Michael W. Smith, who, who I've both I met both when I lived in Nashville. I love them both. They're awesome. Um, but at the time, it was just like ah, it's my mom's music. And like ah, it, that's not for me. And didn't even know Christian music existed. And um, I just I grew there. I grew in Seattle. I was in a great quarterback room with Jim Zorn, with you, with Trent Dilfer, where uh, you guys kind of surrounded me, you know, in a sense. We had a great chaplain, Dr. Carl Payne, who uh, initially I didn't I didn't jive with. I was like I remember meeting him at this conference he was a chaplain for the Seahawks and I thought oh man I hope I never get traded to the Seahawks that chaplain he's a you know like a professor of dinosaurs or something like what is this guy you know who's he trying to reach and then I realized well he's not trying to reach anybody he's trying to train Christians to know their faith well enough to reach people you know like a young quarterback like like the coach teaches you the playbook so that you can go teach the receivers the linemen the running backs the tight end I just was immature and didn't really understand all that I should have understood
0: when I think of the authentic people in my life, Matt, and I don't know You know, if we all need to make lists. Jim Zorn, authentic. Carl Payne, authentic. Mm-hmm. Trent Dilfer, raw, vulnerable, authentic. Uh, I, I hope that I, and you know, it's one of the things, I, you know, prayers in my life is to be transparent authentic. Part of why I'm doing this bo- podcast and what the Lord's put on my heart to do. The authenticity of your walk and and when you play that position and you're traded for a first-rounder and you're to be the guy, ultimately your authenticity is going to come out in the league playing that position on that stage, is it not? No doubt.
1: And you can't fake it. Like, that's the... You can't fake it, and I and I and I I probably offend people sometimes with my honesty at times. But like, I remember this one time. So one of the things that like a moment in my life, my faith journey that I was sort of running from was baptism. You know, so like if you make a decision to follow Jesus, you know, one of the first things you're supposed to do or a command that you're supposed to do is you're supposed to be publicly baptized. And like, for me, it was just one of these things where I was like, like a prayer to God, like, dude, we're good, right? Like, you know me, I know you, like we're boys, like we're good, like we're good. And my church, like whatever churches I was going to, um, they would have like these baptism services. And I just remember every time someone would do it, I would feel so convicted, like, Oh man, you should do that. And I just remember feeling like it was like a little bit, uh, I don't know, kind of embarrassing, like. I don't know. I don't know why I just was running from it for some unknown reason. It was silly. And uh, I was at a I was actually at a at a, like a Christian conference and this this girl and her husband run up to me like, "Hey, listen, we can you help us? We want to get baptized. We became Christians recently and we read in our Bibles and it says we're supposed to get baptized. Can you help us?" I'm like, "Yeah, I got this." Like, you know, I'm connecting them with like preachers, pastors, you know, get helping them get baptized. And then they were like, "Hey, did anybody else want to get baptized?" And I'm sitting there and it was like my my arms were 700 pounds each. Like, I couldn't raise my hand. I just was like, uh, you're wimping out again after all this. You just wimp out. And, um, I fly home the next day. I was in Dallas. I fly home the next day to Seattle. And after church in Seattle, they're like, we're having a baptism opportunity after church. And I was like, <laughs> I, I think in my head, I was just like, oh, I'll do something I'll do with my family over in like Israel and like the Jordan River where like nobody I know sees me. Um, and so, I, sure enough, we were up in, like, uh, north of Seattle in somebody's backyard, very public, cameras, people in Seahawks jerseys. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it was hilarious, mm-hmm. like, the sense of humor in it all. It was as public as you could possibly have get, and it was way better than my wildest dreams. And then I'm in Nashville, and I had invited a couple of our young quarterbacks to uh, – to this like to the same PAO conference that I was so, you know, intimidated by in 2000, I had invited them to this conference and they were going to have an opportunity to get baptized. And, um, and I remember how uncomfortable my baptism situation was and I didn't, you know, I didn't want to push that on them. I didn't want to pressure them. I just wanted to basically make them available. And, uh, anyway, long story short, they come up to me with their wives and they're like, Hey, uh, our chaplain's not here. Would you mind baptizing us? I was like, wait, what? You know, as they're walking up to me and like, Hey, we we want to talk to you. They had this look on their face and I was like, Oh no, Oh no, Oh no. Apologize, apologize. You know, like they're not ready. They're not ready. You moved too fast. You were too bold. And, uh, it's just like, my mind was blown. And definitely I would say in my NFL career, it'd be hard to put something else above that moment for me.
0: Well, how about a couple on the other side? You know, when you were the starter and then Trent Dilfer became the starter, in that moment where you're no longer the guy, you're no longer getting to be the general, what did that do for your walk?
1: Well, again, I think that was part of the journey. Um, I remember getting benched for Trent, you know, when I was hurt uh, in 2001. And I was hurt to the point where I shouldn't have been out there, but they were like, no, you're hurt. Like, Like, you can't go out there. I'm like, oh, I could probably get out there. Like, no, no, you can't. But I wasn't mature enough. I mean, I remember getting thrown out of a practice one time by Jim Zorn. Like, I get thrown out of practice. Like I threw a, I threw a pass so badly. He knew he was trying to work with my mechanics and my footwork and really change everything that I had ever done. And I threw a pass so badly that he thought I was being, like, disrespectful. And he kicks me out of practice. And I refused to go. I mean, I was a punk kid from Boston. So, like, I was like, no, no, I'm not going. And he kicks me out of practice. And I refused to go. And Mike Holmgren calls me over. And he basically is like, listen. Like, for once, he was the good cop and Zorn was the bad cop. Like, rules revolved reversed he's like what is going on over there I'm like I don't know he's probably I don't know what his problem is and he's like listen he's like the only ally you have in this building do you know that like nobody else nobody else wants you to play like nobody else even probably even wants you here and I just remember like him having that conversation with me and uh just being like wow that's the reality so I mean there were all these growth moments and there was you know when they benched me for Trent, I think Trent had like a freak weight room accident one time, and I came in and started a game in the preseason. He tore his MCL in another preseason game, and he was going to miss some time. I mean, there were these opportunities for me to like grab hold of the job and take it. I wasn't ready, you know, as a player or as a person. And uh, it was down in Dallas when Trent tore his Achilles um, in that Emmett Smith game where he broke the record when, uh, you know, I came in and we actually won the game. And I remember by that time, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to play like – if they love how Trent plays, I'll just play like Trent, you know, hit the checkdowns, high completion, take the shots and no matter what when they call them, you know. Like I, I, I realized like the value in what he was doing. Like I was I was, I was was doing things my way and Trent was doing things the way that they were supposed to be done. Mm. And um, I remember after the game, the coaches were like, hey, that was your best game I've ever seen you play. I'm like, wow. That game? What are you talking about? That game? You know, I was, like, playing for field goals the whole game and you know being super safe with the ball. And they were like, yeah, that's great. You know, we won. Like, that's what we need to do right now to win. I was like, oh. Like, really? And then I started thinking about all the other things that Trent was doing. And then I saw the way that Trent reacted when basically it was, it was told to him that I was going to be the starting quarterback again. Uh, I saw how he reacted. And then way bigger than that, uh, you know, my, my, my relationship with Trent was never really good. I always thought he was like super helpful, kind of like he is on these Elite Eleven uh, shows that he runs with these high school kids. Like he talked to you and like give you the the secret to everything, the the answers to the test, and the tricks of the trade. And I remember saying to myself like, no, this guy's competing with me. Like why why would he tell me this? He's just trying to set me up. Like he's a he's a phony. He's a fake. And um, I saw how he and his wife and his family, how they walked through the tragedy of losing their son and where this guy wasn't a fake he was legit he was as he was as good as advertised you know he was really sincerely trying to help me and um i don't know so for me that whole process it was maybe two years almost three years that process was helping me become uh the person the player that i needed to
0: become how important is it for you now matt and was it then
1: to be authentic. To be humble and authentic are like my daily prayer. Like that's my daily prayer. That's what I'm going for. And in in, in that authenticity, I will say my relationship with Trent Dilfer uh, only got got good because our wives chose to make it good in um, your wife I mean I remember it was like Molly Heward Castile for Sarah Hasselbeck when the quarterbacks in that room it was kind of like this you know quarterback competitions can be tough people are like oh, the unselfishness of that quarterback room really spread like wildfire throughout that team throughout that locker room I, like especially me and Trent like we did not get along at all and our wives made a conscious decision to say hey you know what? we're going to be friends our husbands will be friends and <laughs> And that's and really sort of how it started. What kickstarted that authenticity and that humility? I think for me, like I, I remember reading Josh McDowell's book, More Than a Carpenter, when Danny Werfel gave it to me in Green Bay. And it really kicked, it started off the process of me understanding why I believe what I believe. And that was like really, like really, really important to me. Like I want to know why, not just because someone taught me that in Sunday school. I want to know, I want to make sure that what I'm saying I believe like I actually have done the homework and then it was a book was a book actually called uh 12 ordinary men that I read when I was in Seattle I don't remember the year I read it but uh basically it was like who were the disciples before they had an encounter with the risen Christ who were they after you know that was just so like ridiculously strong evidence to me And so once the evidence, like once I had kind of done my own homework and done the work to really evaluate or examine the claims of the followers of Jesus Christ, like that's when it (laughs) was like, oh gosh, like, no, I am so confident. Like no one can know because you have to have faith. But like I'm as confident as I could possibly be as confident as I am in best about anything I know. I think when I felt that I really put my trust in that everything started to change. It was impossible for it not to change. You know, I mentioned before, like I remember growing up as a kid, I thought like, well, if I get real, real serious, like about my faith, I'll, I'll become a priest or like Mother Teresa. I would love, love nothing more than to be thought of a little bit like Mother Teresa. My wife and I, our family, like our, like our mindset, our perspective is, is so global. Like, you know, everyone has something that they're passionate about. Ours is it has been global for, I don't even know how long. And I had the opportunity to take my kids to Africa a couple of years ago, which I would have been deathly afraid of. Well, I was even afraid to do that. I mean, I don't travel much. I don't, I, but we took them over there and, um, you know, thinking, Oh, we we're going to help everybody. We got help so much more than we could have ever helped them and understanding and having empathy for what people in other parts of the world, um, go through, Um, both spiritually and just physically health wise, clean water, um, the, the infant mortality rate, you know, all the different things that they fight, just doing whatever we can to help, uh, them. I mean, it's something that we're just, that we've become passionate about and it's, I guess ironic because it was maybe one of my biggest fears. You
0: mentioned some of the individual personal challenges. How about your faith in a a public forum as it it became, as you lived it out? How did you deal, or did you deal much with the persecution of, of you living out your faith and living out your testimony? You think of a story
1: or two? You know, the one I the one I get, you know, do you remember the wild card game in 2003 season where I, at the halftime of overtime, said, we want the ball, we're going to score? Like, that was sort of a, a tough one for me because it was almost like this misunderstood moment. Like, oh, you're a cocky punk, you know, like you're an arrogant jerk. Like, well, yes, I'm both of those things. But in that moment that really wasn't the intent of like what that was um, in part it was me and my buddies we were just having a blast playing at Lambeau my old team I'm out there with John Randall like one of my heroes growing up and and the guy I'm actually talking trash to is Ryan Longwell who was my best friend and neighbor in Green Bay we were teammates together I held his, uh, the balls for his field goal kicks and he's the guy that I'm talking trash to he's the guy that took me to my first ever Christian concert I never even heard of this stuff I mean good good friend. And so I think there's, there's always this side of me that wants to make sure that even though I know how I want to behave and have fun or whatever, I, I need to, I guess, be sensitive to, um, like, Hey, you, you are a role model. Like you are not just representing yourself. Like you're representing something far greater and you don't want to disqualify the message of what you believe in because of your behavior. And so, uh, there's a fine line there for me. Um, but again, I I think that's where I just have to go back to being authentic and, um, and, and understanding that like not perfect at all, far from it. Like, uh, Totally a screwed up person, if not for the grace of God.
0: And a little bit like you, Matt, and, and I'm thankful for Compassion International, who has sponsored this podcast in totality, and and they've got such an incredible global reach and. And Molly and I, like you and Sarah, I think feel uh, that calling and compelled to do more outside of just that zoo of America that you labeled it and that we live in to a degree. Where can we give back a little bit? Where is a passion, a heart that we can help uh, make a gift on on the behalf of of, of all this time that you've shared with us?
1: Wow, that's um, generous of you. Thank you. And my wife and my kids and I were actually going to Haiti this year to go visit uh, an orphanage there known as Danita's Children, which is very close to our heart. But I'm going to pick a different one uh, because you're up in the Pacific Northwest. And this charity is based in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, we were very involved with them uh, a long time ago and still continue to be with Medical Teams International. Um, They're based in Portland, Oregon. They've got a a hub there in Redmond, Washington. Just an incredible organization that works on such low overhead. And if I had a critique of uh, MTI, it would be that they don't, advertise or tell people all of the great work that they do they're too humble (laughs) if that's possible as 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 people we're supposed to be humble as as charities and organizations I, i i wish they would uh blast it more but i'll blast it for them medical teams international is one of the best charities i've ever heard of ever been around i've ever worked with my wife's been on trips my brother's been on trips with them um love them, love them, love them. So that'd be my choice.
0: And I think you're right, Matt. I think we're all called to, to both love, love, love. We're also called, and I think as you've expressed over the last 40 minutes or so, to have a level of humility, but still share our message. And in a couple of weeks, in fact, two weeks, we'll be back with even more. Can't wait to catch up. And it will be with the greatest coach that I ever played for. The coach that could live out his faith and testimony in the world of sports and continues to do so. Two weeks, Tony Dungy will join this podcast. I hope you're with us.